In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Orion Griffiths is our guest today on Money Tales. You know the street performers who catch your attention when you're hanging out in touristy areas? They entertain and delight you, and you find yourself compelled to drop money in their jar? Street performing is one of Orion's paid artistic endeavors, where he can bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for his work. He's that good. Hi, this is Cami. Orion is a gypsy. He grew up traveling in a Mercedes 508 truck with seven siblings and his parents. They had no home, but Europe was their backyard. He honed his skills in circuses and streets across the world. He's worked in New York, performed on Broadway, and produced and directed one of his own shows. Today, he's a professional acrobat, model, and an aspiring actor. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Orion Griffiths. Orion Griffiths, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. To get the conversation started, will you give us a brief overview of your life focusing on two to three pivotal moments that really make you the person that you are today? I grew up in a small traveling family, traveling around the world, otherwise known as gypsies. We actually are a gypsy family, so that word is not offensive to us in any way, shape, or form. We would perform from city to city, like street performing, to make our money and often do shows in little theaters around town if we could find one that's empty at the time when we were in town. So that was basically our lives, traveling the world as a performing family, and we'd do whatever we could for money. But pivotal moments in my life, I think I remember one time we were in Vienna and it was just too cold to perform outside. And we really weren't making, not able to make enough money to really survive. I was seven years old at the time. And I really remember then at that moment in my life, understanding how important it is in life to have your financial situation kind of steady. And I was only seven years old when I figured that one out. (laughs) And then I think again, when I was 15 years old, we were coming to the States back and forth and we were working with the show, the Shrine Circus, and we had another upset where they had agreed to pay us one thing. And and then they said, there's no way they can pay us it when we got to the show. And it was an issue because we had planned on this money that was coming in to survive with. And then there's nothing you can do at that point. And we had to take side jobs. So we like street performing whilst working on the show. And that also broadened my mind a little at that moment. And then when I started making like much more money on a bigger show, I was doing a Broadway show in New York and I started making a lot of money. Well, not a lot of money, but 
enough to really take care of my family and do stuff with and how easy life is when you have money coming in. <laughs> this is fascinating already. Tell us about your family. Did you have a home base and what were conversations like around money? My dad was really, really strict. He grew up like old, old English, really strict. You don't talk about money. One person handles it. Never talk about how much you have or where it's going. I took a very different approach when I was young. I took the approach as money is going to come and go no matter what. So the fear of not having enough. I let that go. My dad was so strict about that. He would not talk about money to anyone and get very upset and angry, actually. He was quite a violent man, actually. He'd get so angry if you tried to talk to him about it. So that's what got me out of that. I've never had an issue talking about money myself. I started really taking care of my mom and dad when I was like 14 years old, and I've been stable ever since then. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Say more about that. Well, I learned how to save. I learned how to save when I was really young. I think it was at that moment in Vienna that taught me how to save. I started to understand the value of money when you have it. So when you've got money coming in, let's say I'm working a nine to five. And at the end of the week, I get my paycheck, which is, let's say, $500 or $450. And most of us here will take the money and we will pay our rent and then we get groceries. And then we're like, go out and whilst we're going to work the next day, we'll buy a coffee or buy some candy or buy gas for our car, which is all necessary things that you need to do to live a life. But what I realized is before you do all those things, so you get you get your money, you pay your rent, you've done your most important thing now, your place of, of sanctuary is stable. Then you pay yourself. I would hide some money away and then I would use the rest for like groceries and if I wanted to get some chocolate. But first I'd always pay myself and I started doing that when I was young. Hey, Ryan, you've got siblings. How many in this family? All together, there was nine of us kids. Okay. And are you the banker in the family at this point? (laughs) I don't consider myself the banker, but I was definitely the smartest with money. I didn't always need to spend it. And most of my brothers and sisters never had money. So as soon as they got it, they were like, spend it right away. You know what I mean? I even remember a time when I was young, I think I was 10 years old, and we would do jobs and perform. And sometimes us kids would get pocket money. Occasionally, I would lend my siblings money and charge interest on it. I remember doing that. (laughs) You are the banker. I would charge interest when I was like 11, yeah, 11 years old for the next time they got money. How did you know the concept of interest as an 11-year-old? Well, when you go without money, when you're young, and my family, we were well travelers. We went all over. We wouldn't stay out of countries. We went hungry. I've been hungry enough times in my life where we really didn't have anything to understand what interest is or what having when you didn't have means that makes any sense. I don't know how I got hold of it, but I got hold of it at a young age. Say more about that, Orion. I can't even conceptualize this, being hungry, and tell us about this. Well, so my mom and dad, they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid to go travel the world. They weren't afraid to go into a third world country. So we grew up traveling. I mean, we've been through Africa and I mean, all over. We've been literally all over. I remember when I was young, first switching from Spain into like North Africa, into like Morocco, then Algeria. We really traveled. You know what I mean? What an education. I remember being young, really young. And this has happened multiple times. I've seen my parents dragged out of vehicles by cops and guns and And then generally, once they see an English passport, they calm down and leave you alone. But that's happened so many times to me in my life. Had AKs in my face and 
none of us died from a gunshot, but we're not all still alive. I've lost a couple of brothers, but not because of that. So there's nothing to hide for that for us. It changed our lives. We got to see what the world was really like. We didn't go to school. My mom and dad were home tutored, not enough. They didn't tutor us nowhere near enough, but I know a lot about the world. I've seen it. I'm like a chameleon. I can survive anywhere. And what do you do? It's a good question, actually, because now I'm just doing a lot of modeling work. I've been modeling for years and I never treated it that seriously. But since COVID is here, I've been just doing a lot of modeling work, a lot of print fashion work. And I'm also street performing still, which I really quite love. I street perform here in San Francisco at Pier 39 and 41. And then I also will teach circus occasionally if I need to. That's how I make a living now. Yes. Tell us about getting paid as a street performer. It all comes in through tips. So you do a show, you ask at the end of the show, well, I wasn't paid to be here, so I'm going to work off your tips. Here's the thing about Americans, especially Americans, is if you do something high level and skill worthy, they're happy to pay you. They really are. If I go out on the street and I do a 40 minute show where I'm doing some high level acrobatics and tell them some jokes, people are happy to pay me. So I do quite well at <laughs> street performing enough to take care of my mom and dad and one of my siblings and myself. So. Yeah. And it's all cash. So okay. I still pay taxes on every penny. I'm a law-abiding citizen when it comes to that. <laughs> can you say more about that? Because I don't think there's many people who are making a lot of cash who can make that same statement. That's true. A lot of people actually, like bartenders or like other performers, they hammer me for it. They're like, why are you paying taxes on all of that? And I'm like, well, number one, I'm a guest in this country and I'm happy to be here. I'm actually like a very happy immigrant. I'm very happy I'm getting to live in the United States. I find this place amazing. And so someone like me is truly land of opportunity. You can do whatever you want in this country. If you want to do something, you can do it. In Europe, people are like, do what you do. You're really good at desk work. Just do that. Here in America, if you're like, oh man, I want to open an ice cream shop. Everybody's going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, guess it. Do it. <laughs> You just don't get that in the rest. You know what? You don't get that kind of enthusiasm and there's ways to do it here in the States. So I'm happy to be here. And I feel like I was let into this country. I was given a green card, even though it wasn't easy to get. It took a couple of years. But I was still, you know, I'm a guest and I'm excited to be here. So I want, I actually want to pay my taxes. Yes, you're right. I could not claim half of it, but I like to claim my taxes and give to what they're giving me. It sounds like you're an acrobat. You're an actor, you're a model. Oh, well, yeah, that all sounds like quite a lot now, doesn't it? Well, it does. And is it financially driven? I think the answer is probably yes. But tell us a little bit about the drive that has Orion doing the work he's doing. It's a good question. I mean, when I was young, really young, I think I was eight, I saw a T1 Terminator 1, a James Cameron film. And I told my parents, I was like, I want to be an actor. That's what I want to do in my life. And ever since then, I've strived towards that world and spent years trying to break into it and gotten close and even sat down big table reads and got held for films and, and haven't quite broken into it. But for me, it's always like, if you can be the best at one thing, it's quite easy to transfer into another. And there's being the best doesn't mean like being the most talented or the smartest or the fastest, because there's always somebody faster around the corner or slightly stronger or smarter than you are. That's what I've learned from traveling the world. But if you can just do the best at what you can do, you can transfer from one thing to another. And I've always believed 
eventually I'll break into acting. I just need to keep doing what I'm doing and keep being the best at it. That drives me a lot. The idea that one day I will eventually break into film and TV keeps me very happy performing. And I actually love street performing. I mean, I sit, I build a crowd of four or 500 people and I get messages months later. My kids are still talking about you. I often get, we just had a baby boy and we named him Orion. No. I'm like, whoa, whoa. I get that once, once, twice a month, twice a month. I get messages on my Instagram or Facebook and they've named their kid Orion. <laughs> How does that make you feel? It's a bit weird. No, it was a bit weird, but it's been happening for so long now. I'm always like, thank you so much. I'm honored. <laughs> wow, Orion. Well, you have become that guy in my household. And just last night, my youngest was showing me, look what I can do like that guy. And she was showing me this <laughs> fantastic. She lived her body up with just her hands. <laughs> I was yeah. quite impressed. Wait, which one of your kids? Was my youngest. You? She's a five-year-old. Perfect age to start. We can start training them right now. There we go. She's got talent, potential. I bet she does. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. All right. Can we talk more about your childhood? Because it's so fascinating. How did your parents decide that they were going to take you and your eight siblings on the road perpetually? I think it came more as like a pipe dream because my parents were young when they I think they had the first baby at 16 their first child at 16 they were married already at 17 they got permission to get married and they just kept having kids and when they were like 25 my dad was no silly man he already started a car shop with one of his friends he was an incredible machinist very agile man who wanted to get stuff done and he was driven and our great great grandparents used to own the London Music Hall so it, it runs in the family. And my mother's side, we were like the pearly kings and queens, this, this old history of my family. And I think in my dad's idea, he was still this showman, even though he lived in a house in England and he had all these kids. And one day my dad was like, that's it. They had spoken about it and they were like, we're going on the road. And my mom somehow agreed on it. They never really, they had a thousand pounds. They had saved off a thousand pounds, which is, it's nothing. A thousand pounds, you're going to burn through a thousand. That's equivalent to what, maybe 3,000 American dollars today. And they got hold of a Bedford CA, which is a small vehicle, which is like a Mercedes 508, about the same size. And they built it out. My dad built out the back end of it into like a small living bunk beds for the kids and small kitchen. They went on the road. My dad said within a few months, they ran out of money. Oh, I'm missing a little bit of the story. My mom and dad were musicians into music since they were very young. It kind of runs in the family. My dad played guitar and sang, and so did my mother. And my dad had the idea one day to start singing on the street. And he had done it already when he was a child in London. He had sung at the local market and made money street performing in England. So when they were on the road, he was like, this is what I'm going to do to make some money. And he started doing it and it worked because he had my mom singing, him playing guitar and all of us kids just like running around and people loved it. And they were very good musicians. People would pay, very happy to see it. And then one day we were traveling. I haven't heard this story in a long time. I remember I was a baby. So I'm telling this story from my dad's mouth. We were in Ukraine and we parked on the side of a road, like a rest area. And there was a troop of trucks pulled in. It was late at night. And my dad got out in the night and my mom got out and all of us kids jumped out after him, seeing what was going on. And some guy was like, whoa, look, there's a sardine can over there because a small vehicle and a bunch of us jumping out. 
my dad ends up talking to one of the drivers and they were a circus. They were called the Ukrainian Tibetan Mountain Troop, still around, not doing circus, but they were a family owned circus traveling. And it turns out what their lead guitarist, their music guitarist had broken his hand. My dad was like, I'm a guitarist. Started talking to them. He, he was like, if you're interested in coming with us to our next spot, we end up traveling with them. I was a baby at the time. Started to learn circus when I was a baby. After that, we all became circus performers. I was already doing acrobatics by the time I was two years old. <laughs> I'm behind by three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So us, all us kids grew up in the circus life. And then my mom and dad, that was it. They were onto that. They were going from show to show after that. When you teach a kid at a young age how to do acrobatics, it's very easy. It's just natural. It's like you're teaching a, you know, if you're walking with your child and you climb a tree to get food, the child's going to climb a tree to get food. That's just how it works. So you guys are performing as young people. Some of the performances are working with circuses and being paid through a venue. Other times you're on the street busking. As each of you is bringing in this money, are you collectively pulling it together or is each person for themselves? All going to the same. It would go under my dad's hat, actually. Remember I told you he's very strict. <laughs> so it all went into the family. There was never really no, there was no like payout to the kids. No, nothing like that. Occasionally, if we, we wanted something and my dad would, he would be like, okay, if you learn this trick, this new trick, if you wanted something, he would make a deal with you. He would, if you learned this trick, maybe a, like a one-handed handstand or like a layout or, you know, a double back, he'd be like, I'll get you, I'll get you this, but you have to learn this trick. So you were learning about cash incentives and negotiation. Yeah, we learned a lot about negotiating too at a young age, just because of being in third world countries. Often you'd have to negotiate just for food. You'd be like, oh, yeah, we don't. You try and street perform in a third world country and ask for money. Oh, <laughs> you know, a family would be like, you can come to my home and we'll feed you. That's how we did it. We'd go there, you know. And it's got to be strange, like a group of like, a family traveling through countries. They're like, what are these people doing here? You wouldn't believe how nice these people can be. You wouldn't believe it. They give you the clothes off their back. What was the language skill situation? That was always a huge issue, but most of us can speak quite a few languages just from traveling. In Europe, though, it's not really an issue. I mean, if you go to Europe, mostly people can speak English, at least a good percentage, a portion of it. But no, we'd go into countries where we have complete language barrier and you just figure us out. So, Ryan, you talked about coming to the United States and that effort of getting your green card to be able to be here. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did you pull that off with no ties to the United States? So we originally wanted to come here because one of my sisters had a pretty bad accident and lost an arm and like 90% of her body was scarred. It was a electric accident. And in the United States, especially in Boston, you have the best skin grafts in the world. So we decided to come here to go to a hospital called the Shrine Hospital in Boston, Mass. And their burns unit is like number one in the world. So we first came here. My mom and dad and elder sister came and they stayed and us kids fended for ourselves, actually. We were in Rotterdam at the time, staying on this boat and us kids were just fending for ourselves. We were young, too. We were young, really young, and I found a job at the local bike shop, and I would bring home the money, and us kids would go and get groceries. <laughs> My parents were terrible. They just left us at a young age. We would do that, and we built like a little life port with the people around us, and we figured it out. So we learned how to survive at a young age. That wasn't an issue. So my parents spent three months there. 
then came back and then we decided we were going to go to England and we went to England for about two years. Uh, we brought a couple of houses, so built like a baseline of an income. And then we wanted to come back to the States so my sister could keep getting skin grafts. But they would only give like medical visas from my mom and dad and my sister, Victoria. They came over, we flew over, we got visa waivers, we had to leave and come back. And they just wouldn't back then after... It was uh, 2003. They were still, it was very still like 9-11. It was still, still so fresh and visas were very hard to get, even compared to now. And eventually we did a like overstay status and that was not good. The lawyer we had at the time was like, you're going to get banned for 10 years, definitely. But I managed to get onto a show and that it all worked out. We all managed to get onto shows who helped us get work permits. And then after that, green cards. The rough thing about that was I had met an, uh, a lady who I eventually married later. It's just so easy to do it through marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just done it through that. It would have saved thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah but eventually yeah going on to any big show makes it easy they don't do it for you but it gives you a reason to be here because if you're just like street performing or occasionally putting in your own shows america doesn't want you here they only want people that are going to make this country better all right as a street performer are you making much money i can do quite well i don't like to do it all the time because I want to I'm working other stuff. But yeah, I, I do quite well. I mean, I could easily make six figures, as you call it, no issues. Especially if I, if I decided to travel, if I was like, okay, I'm going to street perform in Boston for two months and then I'm going to street perform in San Francisco and then I'll go to Canada and do the Halifax and then I'll, I'll fly to Australia and do the festivals. Yeah, you can make $250,000, $300,000 a year if you want to dedicate. That's some sizable money. You have to be very good at it, though. You can't just be hustling. I mean, my show, I build four or 500 people in a crowd. Out of curiosity, in the United States, you said people were very generous and, and supportive of your work. A 500-person crowd, what would be the percentage of people who would contribute money toward the show? Do you have a sense of that? So most of your families will tip $5, you know, and then, but there's those five or six families or tip of $20. And then there's occasional ones that will tip a hundred dollar bill. So 45 to 50% is like two or $3 and there's good money to them, you know, two or $3. They just saw a street show. They laughed. That's like, to them, that's real money. They feel like they're giving you something. And I respect that. And $5 is quite normal. And then you see the jump right then from one family, you may get 60 or a hundred or so that's the thing about America. If you do something talented, they're very happy to get in Europe. You'll get like pennies and <laughs> you won't get that in America. Yeah. I don't get changed. It also is because my show style, I really build a show and I really give. So they're happy to give. I feel in America, if you do something talented, they're happy to give. So will you tell us about being on Broadway? I was in San Francisco at the time. I had started a small circus school in the Excelsior with a couple of other kids, and we were trying to make a safe environment for acrobats in San Francisco that didn't have a lot of money that wanted to become better. So we started a small school, an underground school, and it was doing really well. We had 150 students by the end of it, a few of us teaching. I was training at the time. And then I get this 
random, random phone call from New York City. And I'm like, hello. This guy's like, hello, Orion. I'm like, yes. He's like, oh, I've heard about you through the circus community. I reached out to you on Facebook and I didn't get a response. I was like, oh, that's, I have a Facebook, but I rarely go on it. He's like, yeah, we're doing this Broadway musical directed by Diane Polis and the circus part of it is going to be Gypsy Snyder, which I know Gypsy from way. And I was like, musicals, like, like singing and dancing. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, no, that's, that's, that's not what I do. You don't want me. I'm a circus performer. He's like, no, no, it's going to be like the style is like Bob Fosse. And I was like, no, no, you're wasting your time. I'm not what you need. I'm a believer and be honest. If you can do it, if you can make it better, then go and give it. But if you don't have what they're looking for, don't waste some of these time. So I was like, no, no, I'm not your guy. You need to find somebody else. <laughs> I don't sing. I'm not a talented singer by any means. I'm not really a very high level, like Broadway style dancer. I can dance, but Bob Foss is a very kind of knife style. It's like very specific. And I was like, I'm not your guy. He was like, oh, so you're not interested? I was like, no, I don't think it's for me. At the time, I talked to my wife and she was like, it's a Broadway musical, right? And I was like, yeah. She was like, I think those are pretty big. You should maybe do that. I was like, I don't think I can add to that show. And uh, we had the conversation. She's like, you want to go into movies? This is the way you do it. I was like, okay. And then I carry on getting the phone calls. And then after like a week, I was like, all right, all right, I'll come to New York. I was really lucky, I think. I didn't have to audition or anything. They just brought me in. And you said that was the first time you really felt like you were making money in your life? Well, yeah, because all the money just goes into one part. And I already saved my own money. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, I had to get a paycheck. It's pretty hefty, especially when all the money you make, it just goes to the family. And I love that. I had no issues with that life. But so they go from that to making you know, $3,500 a week. It's a big difference. It's real money. Is that the first time that you were independent of your parents financially or? Yeah, I mean... I was thinking about this the other day. It's funny that you asked that, independent from my parents. I became independent from my parents when I, I think I was like 12 years old. I was like, okay, I know how to save my own money, but we were a family, you know what I mean? So we wanted to stay together and travel together. And by the time I was 14, I was already really taking care of the family. I was like, yeah, we should work more. We should do more shows. We should do this here and keeping it together. Yes, that was the first time I decided to not work directly with the family. I actually had done a lot of modeling. I started modeling when I was 16, modeling for Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister. I was in there like shop windows and stuff. <laughs> so I had done stuff, but I prefer to stay with the family. As a result of taking this Broadway gig and getting a big paycheck every week, did that change your life? I mean, I went from living in RV to having an apartment. That was strange. So yes, I guess I should say it changed my life. It was strange living in the normal lifestyle, which has its perks, of course. But it also has its like restrictions. When you're living in an RV, you can go wherever you want and do whatever you want. But you're living in a house, you, you can't move. <laughs> which do you prefer? And now I don't know anymore. Now I don't know. Because of all the traveling I've done, I quite enjoy not traveling at the moment. I'm like, I've done so much traveling. I'm really enjoying living in in San Francisco at the moment and not traveling. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> so I have to ask, what's the craziest stunt you've ever done? Good question. 
I think that the hardest trick I've ever done personally is I started working on this balancing act when I was really young. In the circus world, it's called rollerball. It's just like a tube that you stand on with a board. I'm sure you've seen it, surfers use it. But I stack like five of these tubes on top of each other. And I started working on a handstand on it when I was like 11 years old. Yeah, 11 or 12. I was working with a, this coach called Vasily, an incredible coach. He was like, I really think you can do this. And I trained it for years and years and years. And I didn't really actually start being able to do it until I was about 25. It took 15, 16 years to learn. I'm training very hard at the moment, decided I'm going to do some competitions in circus. I never really liked competing. I, I always found that it takes the love away from what circus is. Circus is such an explosion of happiness and a gift to the people around them. When you put that in a competitive style, which there's some sports where it's incredible competing, but it sucks the life away from it. And in this world of loving each other and taking care of each other, once the competing starts, it creates this massive wall between each performer. So I never wanted to do it, but I've decided that I'm obviously coming to the end of my circus career. You know, I'm in my thirties now and, and you really can only go until you're 40, 45. And I really want to pursue the acting world. So I'm training really heavy at the moment, getting ready to do some circus competitions. I might do like the big ones in Europe, like the Mar, Monte Carlo. If I get invited, I may do America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent. We'll see. So I'm training hard at the moment. Out of curiosity, what is it about aging that makes the circus acrobatics so difficult? There's no 401. That doesn't exist. So there's all there is is save up money, save up money. And often like we just got hit. I haven't been able to make money in two years because of COVID. It's just now opening back up. Pier 39 opened for a, a month and then closed back down. So I haven't been able to work in a few years. If I hadn't been smart since I was a kid, my family would just would have had no money. And I just drained through and did other stuff to make some money on the side. But it doesn't exist for us. So you have to get smart, much smarter. Now I'm okay. I'm still enjoying performing. I want to compete. But there comes a time where you have to get realistic. Ryan, earlier in the conversation, you talked about helping to support your parents and one of your siblings. Would you tell us more about that and what that looks like for you? Well, obviously, my mom and dad didn't have a 401. They put most of their life into their kids and traveling, and they always wanted to start a circus, like a tented show, and things don't always work out as you want them to. And they were never able to do that. And I still believe in the old style of life where your parents take care of you, then you take care of them. That world doesn't really exist anymore. But that's how it used to be. And I still have a lot of respect for that. I mean, obviously, you have to have your boundaries. And one of my sisters had an, a really bad accident when she was young. And she has kids now. She's lucky enough to have kids. So I'll take care of her before I take care of myself. <laughs> you mentioned Terminator. Today, what would be your dream acting job? I always wanted to do film. Looking at some of the stuff now that Zack Snyder and J.J. Abrams is doing, and they're all doing film and television now. I think I probably would do really well on television just because of my years of being on stage. I think I would be an incredible, incredible villain. <laughs> <laughs> there we got it. It took a while. You're such a nice guy. I'm, I, don't, I can't imagine you playing a villain. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen some stuff that will make your toes cruel, and I've been around mm. enough stuff in my life. 
And I have spent years in acting school. I went to acting school back in 2012 and graduated from Terry Schreiber and then studied at Spicer Sturges and like Vincent Chase and Morgan Shepard. And I always would just murder it in acting school, do really well. And I would be going to auditions and I would always get down to the last few people. But for some reason, over the last 10 years, I just can't seem to get the last little, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I have no intention of giving up, I tell you that. What's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't covered yet? I think I touched on it a little bit earlier. So the way I've always done okay with money, even though you know I haven't had a lot, is just to make sure you give yourself money, may it be $5 or 10, pay yourself before you pay the rest of the world. That's how I've always gotten around it. Put it in a little box in your room. Five dollars eventually will become a thousand and then a thousand is enough to do something with. How does money make you feel today? Oh, that's a good question. I can go back to that Broadway now question that you asked me earlier. I didn't really know how to answer it. I've always been safe with money and I always had like at least like 10 grand cushion at all times. And then when I went onto Broadway, I started making real money. I remember within a few months, I looked at my bank and I was like, oh, wow, I have $50,000 that I've saved. I was so impressed. And I was like, well, I should at least save 70000 And then I did. And then I was like, well, I should save a hundred. And then it hit me right then. I was like, oh, it just it doesn't make me feel good. And after that, I stopped caring because at that moment, I really realized the saying I heard at a young age, the more you have, the more you're going to want. You have to be able to let that part of it go. I don't think that goes for all of society. It is very important for artists because if you get into that loop of trying to get more money, it destroys your creative side. So no, it doesn't make me feel good in any way. It makes me feel happy to know I have it, but I have no interest in now trying to make millions. When I did at one time, I've just no zero interest in it. It can destroy your creative side. I learned that in maybe eight, nine months, and I realized it was happening to me, and it changed me. That was a changing moment for me. I managed to back out of that, and now I know I have enough, and I'm not dedicated to try making more money, and it got rid of that little bit of darkness that I developed from making more money. I felt it happened, didn't realize it was happening, realized it was happening, and managed to get myself back out of it. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? So a lot of my siblings always ask me about my, and my friends too, some friends that make way more money than me, they always ask me about money and they're like, oh, how do you always have money? How are you always okay with money? And I think I'm just about to talk to Keely about money, one of my sisters in mass. And I think what I'm going to say to her now is, is she's, she's working at a pizza shop at the moment. And she's living quite a good life. She's got kids and she works off of tips. So she makes money and likes to really spoil her kids. So I think the conversation I'm going to have with this, this I've really thought about this. Funny you asked me. I'm going to say, hey, so Keely, you make a few hundred dollars in tips a week and then you get paid, right? So let's say you have that $300. Let's take $100 of that and put that away and don't break into it. Like don't even spend a dollar because once it's broken, it's no longer $100. It's only $99 and then it's easy to spend from that point onwards. But start doing that, making it an untouchable thing. You have chunks, may it be 50 or maybe 100. Just keep it at that and decide not to touch it. 
even if you have to, you really don't have to leave it because once it's broken, it's broken. That's how you save money. I think you might have a future in financial planning. I, I think you're right. Maybe, maybe. Well, Ryan Griffith, this has been such a fascinating and very insightful conversation. Thank you so much for telling us your money stories. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. I really am honored. And it, as soon as I break into the movie industries and that first check comes along, please, I would love to be on your show again, because I'm sure it's going to be a different conversation. Maybe, but don't lose that artistic spirit. I, I know you won't. It can't. It's too far. It's too far gone for me. Oh, yeah. When we first got to the States, I forgot to tell you this. We performed all the way around every state in the Shriner hospitals for bedridden kids. We performed at all of them for kids that couldn't move. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, my gosh. So my family did a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, we've always been about giving back. It took us two years to do it. In all the hospitals, we'd go and kids would get wheeled out and we'd perform for them and they would lose it. They would lose their minds. I bet. What a gift. You're a gift, Orion. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> We're making you blush. Well, thank you for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Hey, Cammie, what was your biggest money insight from this conversation with Orion Griffiths? Orion really told a story that drew me in. He lived this very exotic life, traveling all over the world. I felt the fear and the scariness aspect of it where he was hungry at times. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from at times. And it just was really powerful. What I appreciated was how Orion at a very young age learned that he was not going to be someone who where money was going to come and go and he had no savings. He learned from his dad's refusal to talk about money and even becoming angry about money that he didn't want to be that person. And so at a very young age, Orion became the family banker. And that's really an important story. I'm hearing in Money Tales a lot of examples where people have been either their banker for themselves, putting money aside, thinking about how they're going to earn, how are they going to value money. And for Orion, he really brought that to life through his story. That's right, Cami. We see that from time to time in our client work, where clients experienced a trauma in their childhood that really formed their relationship with money much more strongly than clients who didn't experience the trauma. And so I appreciated Orion sharing with us what it was like to be hungry and cold at such a young age and realize that that's not the way he wanted his life to be. So he became this old soul on the streets of Europe as a young person. And today I thought it was cool how he is expressing his values by how he's using his money. This is something we talk about a lot in Money Tales. We talk about how satisfying life can be when our spending and other money decisions are aligned with our values. And I thought that came through in spades for Orion when he was telling us why it was important to him to pay taxes to the United States government. I was really moved by that. I thought it was really beautiful. And he's also contributing heavily to the welfare of his family, especially his parents and his sister. So again, another value. You can tell being raised in that large family, traveling and living through varied conditions <laughs> needing to fend for themselves, that family bond is strong and his family is a really important part of his life. 
Sandy, it's so true. He's such a passionate guy for those he cares about. What resonated with me was when he talked about being a proud immigrant. I come from an immigrant background. I'm married to a very proud immigrant. And I just started smiling when he talked about that. Sandy, along those lines, and we've heard it before on Money Tales, Orion made an important point that we should continue to talk about, and that's the importance of paying yourself first. He said, make sure you pay yourself before you pay the rest of the world. What a great way of saying it. And he also talked about maybe it's a dollar, maybe it's $5. And that's an important lesson. It doesn't have to be some large sum of money. You might not be able to afford a large sum of money, but it's the habit. I liked him telling that story and reinforcing the importance of that habit. Me too. And Cammy, he did express some concern about not having a 401k and not having a retirement plan. So I wanted to make sure we highlight for our listeners that when people are making money, whether it's money you're getting paid from an employer or money that you're making as a self-employed person, all of those earnings can allow you to make contributions to a retirement plan. Many employers today offer 401k plans, so that's easy for people who are employed if their employer does have a plan available to them. But for folks who are earning self-employment income like Orion is, there are many different retirement plans that they can set up. Uh, It all depends upon how much money they have to save. So that's a great way for people to save money for the long term. They can set up an IRA. They can set up a SEP IRA. There's something called an individual 401k There's lots of different choices. So listeners, if you're in a situation where you've been paying yourself first and you have some savings and some investing going on and you want to take that to the next level and save on a tax preferred basis for the long term, be sure to check out different retirement plan options that may be available to you. What a great financial insight. Thanks, Sandy. Thank you, Cami, And thank you, Orion, for being our guest. I enjoyed this conversation. It was really fun. And there's a lot of unexpected things that I learned from Orion. Absolutely. Thanks, Orion. And thank you, listeners of Money Tales. Please send us an email. Tell us how your money conversations are going. You can email us at podcasts at Asperient.com. See you next time. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.